This is great. So I, I'll just share, um, this is Vince Horn, Buddhist Geeks, and I'm taking part in this conversation with some old friends and colleagues. And I don't know how you'd refer to me, but I consider you friends and colleagues. And um, yeah. thank you. And yeah, so great to see you all um, with Charlie Aubrey and David Chapman and Jared. Janes. Yeah. Janes. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jared Janes. Great to be here with you guys. Yeah, it's, it's been... great to be with you, Vince. It's been, uh, I think the first time we met was back in Buddhist Geeks in Boulder. Yeah, this was maybe, maybe a decade ago or so. Yeah, yeah. And I think even before that, I met you all in LA um, in maybe 2011. Is that right? Were you, did you all come out to the first Buddhist Geeks conference in I was there, uh, yeah. East LA? Oh, you were? Okay, yeah. yeah. So ten, 10 years at least since I've met, met you, David. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. That was a, a fantastic time. It felt really exciting at the time. It felt like there was something happening and yeah. it's new. And now it's like way way back in the rearview mirror. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm really um I, I really, really have been wanting to talk to you all about what you're doing. And to be honest with you, I've only sh I've only followed in a real superficial way what you all have been up to, just kind of listening to conversation you had with uh, Michael Taft and um, of course, following your, the general announcements and things you're sharing publicly. But beyond that, mm -hmm. I haven't been participating in, in your new community uh, evolving ground. And I, I am really excited though, that you all are picking up on that whole thread of like how to evolve Vajrayana practice um, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, for, for whatever the contemporary moment Um and that was a big theme I know in Buddhist geeks for many years that we were all, people would talk a lot about, and it was always like, well, how do we do this? And who's going to do it? <laughs> and it seemed like to some degree, you all answered the second question. You said, well, we'll do it. We'll do we'll, we'll take it on. So I'm just in huge admiration that you're willing to take that project on because it seems like there's a lot of challenges. And I know, David, your philosophical work uh, with meaningness has also been happening in parallel with the evolving ground stuff. So to me, it's like, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's been happening since we last spoke. And I'm just really curious, you know, what you all are up to and how you're seeing things. Well, I might just say it is kind of funny. Um, I don't know if it was a, we ever made a, a super deliberate uh, decision to start the community. It kind of just started itself. Um, and maybe it was partially because of the, the quarantine as well, but uh yeah, it was kind of very spontaneous in the sense that um, Charlie and I started having a lot of conversations, and um, I was being acquainted with the the Vajrayana view, and um, it was super impactful for me. And uh, yet, we seem to be treating it in a more informal, um, <clears throat> not not super traditional way, uh, and a lot of the kind of cultural presentation wasn't uh, a big emphasis um and it worked really well for the two of us and so we were kind of like yeah i wonder if anybody else would be interested and and had a, a random meetup and people showed up and so i got oh, oh i guess there are people ready and so yeah we mm -hmm. invited them and uh, then we had started a community unbeknownst to ourselves i think <laughs> it did arise very naturally and um i think it could happen like that because we had been thinking about it for so many years and talking about it. You know, we did have the Vajrayana group in the Buddhist Geeks for a while as well. So that was, in some sense, 
a precursor or it was laying the foundations in some way. David and I have been talking for, you know, probably 20 years or so about what would it be like? What would it look like? And then it just seemed like the moment was right. There, There hadn't been that sense of things really coming together in a way previously. Um, so it, it arose very spontaneously, very naturally, in true uh, Zogchen fashion, you could say, you know, wasn't uh-huh. sort of very systematically put together. And I think a lot of the approach to our first year was intentionally quite insular as well. Picking up on what you were saying about the being somewhat involved and seeing things from a distance, I think we we weren't intentionally putting a lot of information out there publicly. We wanted to establish ground, as it were, evolve some ground and establish some ground at the same time. And and so we, we set up, we spent a lot of the first year setting up structures, um, seeing what naturally emerged from the community that came together. Um, So we started off very loosely, intentionally, very loosely. And then, quite naturally different roles seemed to emerge from uh, from the communication from the friendships that were forming the bonds so we we've now pretty firmly established some distinct roles we have a solo practitioner role we have a uh-huh. pupil role and then we have an apprentice role which is uh, really mm. limited in numbers but um, very involved sort of uh, looking towards the future and involvement in creating the community itself and dialing in good, healthy group dynamics, good cultural uh, norms and conventions. So we put a lot of time into that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so there's some different roles emerging mm-hmm. within your community over the last year. Mm-hmm. Where there's some clarity around like how, diff- how different ways people can participate in different levels of engagement. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And how about your you all's roles? Do you do you have a sense of your roles of how you're kind of participating in this? Yeah, that that's really interesting. So something that Jared and I uh, we meet every week for several hours uh, at least, and then we have lots of discussion outside of that. So our friendship and our role as co-founders and then our roles as mentors or as teachers has also been evolving too and one of the one of the ongoing conversations that we've had is around how do we fluidly move between roles in the community and in relation to each other as well we're not we're not in fixed um reified roles in relation to each other or in relation to other members of the community, we're um, establishing norms of relationship that are based on the function of the relationship in that particular time or, or context. So there are times when I will take more of a teacher type of role. There are other times when I'm a host for a group, a facilitator, and much more of a kind of facilitatory role. Um, So being aware of role in the moment and adapting to that um, contextually and congruently is an aspect of the practice as well. Okay, that's helpful. 
And then David, I'm curious what your relationship is to this evolving ground project because you and Charlie are partners, you live together. So obviously you share a lot of your lives, but like, how are you seeing your role in all of this? Right. Um, I'm curious about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe uh, I should when, ask Charlie and Jared how they see your role in it. <laughs> well, that would be very interesting to me. Um, when Charlie and Jared got started, which was about 14 months ago, Charlie said, do you want to be involved? And I said, uh, in theory, but in practice, I have zero bandwidth for this. I actually can't. And I had no role at all until about two months ago. My time started to free up some over last summer. And Charlie and Jared met physically for the first time in Boulder, Colorado, where we were there for oh, a nice. month. Yeah, you know, it's our favorite place on earth. Um, mm -hmm. It's really great to be back there. Uh, but um, at the same time, coincidentally, Charlie was starting to teach a course on Tantra, which is material that they'd never taught before. And um, somehow I got sucked into some sort of a role in that, <laughs> which I, I think remains um, contextual and unclear. My joke um, in Tibetan system Tantra is supposed to be taught by a couple that's actually kind of intrinsic to its nature um, related to the fact that it's about relationship and about uh, being in the real world, which is a social world. And um, also uh, it's extensive heterosexual symbolism um, and so, uh, you know, in pr practice in Tibet, often Tantra is taught by monks. Um, but there's usually, there's some woman there who's sort of designated as the sort of symbolic teaching partner to the monk. Um, it, in important rituals, especially. Uh, and, um, or, uh, if it's a, 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 a yogi who is not monastic and not celibate, then very often there will be their actual partner there. And, um, in that case, uh, they're called sangyum, which basically means, um, uh, wife, um, uh, in, Tantra women teachers are very important, and some of the most important tantric teachers in the Tibetan tradition have been women. Uh, but um, by and large, most teachers are men, so it's the Sangyum is the woman there, at least symbolically. So uh, since neither Charlie or I are um, altogether heterosexual or cis, I, my, my joke is there uh, that I'm there as, as Sangyum. Um, so my job is to be uh, decorative and mostly keep my mouth shut. Uh, <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> it's, it's so bad on so many levels. <laughs> I can see why it's funny. <laughs> Good that you can laugh about that. <laughs> nice. In practice, though, actually teaching together has been 
just incredibly enjoyable. And there's a kind of magic to it that I think we both weren't expecting that has just taken off and become just a, a lovely process. We're still seeing where that is going. But in in practice, I find, you know, we, we have different strengths. I've got much more of a practice background. David has more, um, you know, he's really good on knowledge and has done extensive research. So the way that we can riff off of each other and um, compare experience has been fantastic. I don't know. What do you think? How how do you, how have you found teaching together? Because you know, I don't, I don't think anybody in the in the room regards you as ornamental. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> although you're um, very handsome. Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't feel qualified to be a teacher. I wouldn't do any teaching if you weren't there. I do think. We've discovered some kind of, uh, you know, to use the word loosely, magic about mm-hmm. that situation that um, was not something either of us expected mm-hmm. and is a little difficult to, to communicate. Maybe Jared can say something about how it comes across for him. Hmm. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about context two of, of you know the 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 situation we find ourselves in and one of the things that came to mind as you were speaking is is uh, you not being an ex- explicitly teaching and yet as Vince was saying you've been writing about Buddhism and um, and related concepts and different um, from more of a stem oriented perspective and that is really one of the most present um, content in a lot of the folks that come into the community too. So there is this kind of uh, familiarity um, and the the changing nature of how we relate to each other in the community, um, the, the informality that that, uh, that is, is kind of normal uh, kind of leads to this. Yeah, the, the way when I see it from a, an outside's, outsider's view, it is this kind of playful, um, humorous, uh, and yet, still very precise uh, way of of uh, you two bouncing off of each other. So it's it's uh, it's really fun to see. I love it. <laughs> I think it, you it know, does get to something that is has been at the heart of evolving ground since we started, which is this idea of relationship being core, relationship with peers, and relationship with context, relationship with emotions as they arise, relationship with mentors, with spiritual friends, with teachers. So there are um, all these different relationships that become available and that are, by necessity in Vajrayana practice, they are the core of what practice is about. And that bringing that into beginning to move into tantric method where the method itself is relationship. You bring spaciousness into activity. You're starting with that open, um, vast space. You're starting with ethical maturity in relation to your emotional um, valence or your emotional experience of the world. And then you bring that base into activity. 
So you could describe the whole of tantric uh, practice in that way. I think we're we're experiencing that happening in the move into method as opposed to foundations. So we're moving from the foundation starting tantric method, starting to look at the function of the method traditionally and how that can be translated into a more contemporary context. Mm, okay, great. So that, that's some of the big, like the deep translation stuff, it sounds like. Like how do you mm-hmm. do the same thing in a different context? Right. Which is like radically different. <laughs> it's radically different context, and yet we don't want to um, deny the function of the yeah. uh, the practices that um were translated in Tibet as well. They were translated from from right. India and and went underwent a cultural transition then. So it's very interesting right. looking at that time, looking at that whole early spread of Tantra and how that changed and how it met mm. the culture and then learning from that in terms of how do we how do we translate, for example, the teacher-student relationship, which is massively important in Vajrayana, and yet we have seen go into classic failure modes. How do we translate the function of that, which is in the original context, that is transmission, transmission of knowledge, of understanding, of presence of awareness, experiential transmission. You know, how do we how do we still make that possible, but within a structure that is accountable and more conducive to contemporary setting? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you know, we're we're not um, denying the validity of the the function of those practices and the way that they came about, but we're understanding what that function is, and then how do mm-hmm. we how do we give rise to that? in a different context. And that does require different forms, new forms, new structures, new approaches. Yes. The, all, the, all, the hard work. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. Do you have thoughts about that? Have you, uh, have you, Oh, done yeah, I mean, own? just, just, to, yeah. just an agreement on all of what you just said, um, with Buddhist geeks and our, our sort of practice ecosystem, you know, where there's teachers and practitioners and facilitators and different roles, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, people engaging with together. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's been a huge contemplation for us for a number of years about how to, Mm -hmm. how to not reject the function of of a teacher Mm -hmm. and the, and the, um, the, the vertical, the vertical, uh, relationship right. of learning right. like within a specific context so like this is something that we're learning yeah. together exploring yeah. um but at the same time how not to yeah like you're exactly you're saying co- concretize that in a way that uh well this is how i'd put it concretize that that relationship in a way that just sort of creates this sort of comical mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> teacher who <laughs> everyone is just like daddy or mommy figure parent figure up there getting every all the projections and all the transference and you know all the power Mm -hmm. it's like oh yeah that that doesn't work (laughs) and then rejecting authority doesn't work too because that's like a lot of our teachers you know i think in my teachers 
you know, kind of were like so hesitant around the the role itself that they, you know, in some ways often I think rejected the, the, uh, the authority of the teacher or just avoided really close intimate relationships with people. So it didn't get messy. Like they kind of kept people at distance and I don't know like how people manage this, but I know it's been a, an issue for a mm-hmm. while. <laughs> like mm-hmm. how do we integrate awareness of power dynamics into Buddhist community? Yeah. Yeah. I think the uh, the onus traditionally has been tremendous, both on teachers and students as well, because of this polarizing. You can see that the the polarity of roles, in some sense, is very much in keeping with tantra traditionally, but less so with you know if you if you want to look at Vajrayana and, and categorize it in one particular way, you can look at it as being tantric in nature or from a Zogchen perspective. So those are two different um, two different views. And the tantric perspective would, the tantric form would have much more of a division into the form on the one side. You know, you can see that how that does get fixed because you're in the in the tantric path, you're bringing emptiness to form. So the student has this responsibility to become completely open, complete blank slate, um, to leave all um, aspects of their own form behind. And then the, the teacher has this onus, this responsibility to um, behave in a way that is um, enlightened, in inverted commas. They are a representative of a different world, another world. And what happens with that fixed structure, I think, is that it very easily begins to prescribe behavior and prescribe Mm. um, voice and activity and uh, role and personality. And you very quickly get into this kind of um, prescribed relational mode that has very little room for movement and what is missing there and something that i think our culture actually can bring and can and that is unique is this understanding of personal integrity understanding of how to relate skeptically i don't think we should throw that out it's a very good base and I don't mean skepticism in the sense of um, you know uh, the the very popular understanding of uh, why should I believe you? I'll just follow my own judgment. That sort of very generalized um, idea of what skepticism is. I mean, in the sense of a, a kind of rigor, a kind of uh, emphasis on the importance of truth and accuracy and understanding, so that you're honest with your own understanding, you're honest with your own perception, you bring that as the base. And then from that, a very different kind of trust can develop, a really mutual autonomous kind of trust. I think we're, you know, we're beginning to see how that is possible in evolving ground, but it does take time. You know, you, you can't just immediately step into a uh, or many people do immediately step into a kind of prescribed role, and then that is where the failure mode 
happens. So we're constantly dialing in the importance of honest disagreement, of of reasonable disagreement, of questioning, of uh, integrity, personal integrity, but doing that mm. in a way that remains open. Um, you know, we're we're constantly looking at how people relate in the discord and. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. only rules that we have there are kindness and awareness. Starting yeah, general, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> working, working, <laughs> working to the specific. <laughs> nice, good strategy. <laughs> and, yeah. and the interesting I, thing is, you know, it, when we first started the community, um, we thought we were beginning to be a bit like broken records because we would be constantly talking about how. Um, a major component of this speaking to the kindness is, is an appreciation of differences. Um, and that appreciation of differences and in perspective and personality, um, also means that the relationships that are created, um, are wholly unique. Each one of them is kind of wholly unique, you know? So some people I relate to kind of like, uh, you know, a brother vibe or, you know, I have like, you know, some, some bros or, or, you know, uh, it, it, it just, I never know what type of relationship is going to be established. And, uh, and then that you get this kind of non-prescribed naturally arising trust when you've gotten familiar with each other, uh, over a certain amount of time. Um, and so it's, it's also, uh, it takes some patience to Charlie's point, right? It's not something that you can immediately, uh, snap your fingers and say, all right, let's start re- relating to each other in a very specific way. Um, but I also think it has an advantage too, because you can really, you know, this, this kind of the cliche phrase of meeting people where they're at, uh, if they're very comfortable being themselves, um, and finding a natural way of relating with you, it's, there's, mm-hmm. I, th- I feel like it creates so many more opportunities to find what is, could be impactful points of, of, um, reference for, for people's practice and things like that too. I feel like one thing, you know, I, I, I almost need to mention because it seems like it, it, it relates to so many things that have been already brought up. You know, you talked about, um, Charlie, about needing to move between roles with each other, recognizing you're in different roles at different times, um, mm-hmm. and just kind of having a kind of awareness, like a meta awareness of those roles, mm-hmm. you know, and being able to work with that as part, part of the, of the whole context of what what you're doing. And then, you know, talking about like people having different roles within the community and knowing, having some clear understanding of how they're relating to things. Mm -hmm. To me, it's like, we can't talk about that with also, without also talking about some kind of developmental dimension of things. Yes. Um, Because I know David, you've written about this and it's probably, I don't know if it's an explicit part of what y'all are talking about in evolving ground, but we have made it explicit in a lot of ways in Buddhist geeks, you know, that we're interested in helping people grow up and mature in their ability to like, in terms of how they're viewing things and viewing the world. Uh, and, and it seems like that mature view connects somehow to the ability to hold different roles and meta rationality. And, you know, there, there's just different things that come online for people at certain points in their you know, their own growth and unfoldment, it seems like. And then for, for those that don't have those capacities, you know, entering into a community where you're being asked 
to do something that's beyond your capacity to do, it's obviously that's a very uncomfortable position to be in and not good for the community. I've seen, I've been in communities where that happens, where it's like there's a developmental mismatch. It sounds like you all are expecting people to, to maintain their own autonomy in a community, like that's already a pretty high bar from, from, from what I can tell. Um, not, not a bar that's like, you know, that you still, there's a lot of people that can do that um, on good days, but still like, how do you all relate to or think about the developmental dimension of, of what you're doing? Does that factor in? Do you talk about that? Just curious. I'm just wondering whether David, you want to um, chime in here? I mean, it's certainly something that we've talked a great deal about. Yeah, I mean, Charlie and I talk about this all the time because I am, you know, have only been involved with evolving, involved with evolving ground uh, very briefly and in a sort of bizarre, undefined role. It's a little difficult for me to comment specifically, but correct me if I'm wrong on this, but my impression is that Charlie and Jared are regarding this as. Uh, supporting a developmental process that um, is influenced by the understanding of the adult developmental psychology literature in part, and that um, I know they are very explicit about metasystematicity as a principle, that there are lots of different views which are useful in different circumstances depending on purposes and persons. Mm. And... um, uh, talking about um, the ways in which formalizing and systematizing things can be valuable and also that it can also be limiting. And right. how do you flexibly choose when to do which of those or do both in different ways at the same time? Um, and uh, um, how do you support people in moving into that kind of uh, autonomy within a structure, which is uh, sort of a, in the Robert Keegan's terms, that's a stage four kind of way of being, that there's some support that's necessary for that, but also some challenge of, um, you know, you're not, uh, you know, you, you could be doing this more uh, in terms of your own thinking. You don't need to be maybe relying on other people or kind of going along with a group here. That That's the challenge. And then also in um, supporting people in moving past a excessively rigid systematic mode where um, they think, okay, you know, we've got the doctrines and the methods and here's how it all fits together. And this works for that reason. And, uh, first you do this and then you do that. And, um, this doctrine is the answer to that question. Uh, all of that is very useful in, in some ways that sometimes for some people and also, uh, some more fluid way of being and viewing things becomes really important at a certain point. Right. Yeah. That's yeah, I helpful. think I'd like to pick up on your your point there, Vince, about how do you maintain autonomy within a, a very strong, cohesive group dynamic? And this is speaking to um, you know, David Mapping 
um, developmental stages or uh, developmental proceeds or whatever. Not not that they are necessarily entirely linear um, and predictable, but um, what what we see emerging is this. Uh, I think several nodes. Like I'd like to think about it in terms of nodes. Um, one being the community at large, the, the wider structures um, which are growing quite rapidly, but that we really have put quite a lot of time into thinking what methods, as in what consciously dialed in relational modes are conducive to maintaining autonomy. And you can do that. You can identify different interpersonal styles of relationship that are more or less um, respectful of personal um, questioning integrity. So we, we have one apprentice, but so all of our apprentices are working on projects. We have one apprentice who's particularly keen to look at group methods and to understand mm-hmm. what goes wrong in cultish dynamics where that mode of relation becomes more and more prescribed and less um, less authentic to the individual experience and more stepping into a prescribed role. And we're developing uh, group methods that we'll you know, trial and test and, and mm-hmm, tweak mm-hmm. and whatever that, that will work well at the wider community level. So I see a lot of the mm-hmm. A lot of the wider community being about um, facilitating people to to ask questions and to disagree and to find a mode of disagreement and a mode of integrity that is unprescribed and a lo- and we just keep on going back to that. Keep bringing it up in the discord. We keep you know that is going to be constantly reiterated. Um, when we first started having the uh, the whole community gatherings of the, the members, the pupils, apprentices, solo practitioners, a lot of what we were looking at was communication, different styles of communication, um, how to have conversation that is based in understanding your own position and then moving from that into understanding the other's position and how to how do those relate to each other. So pretty basic, good interrelational personal dynamics are an aspect of that methodology. But then in the more um, more recent, you could call it say the, the tantric practice node, that is I think much more conducive to relating to a system and learning how to relate individually to a system that is separately defined from psychological worldview or from a um, traditional tantric worldview that is a node in itself. So it is a, a testing ground, if you like. You can actually step into a relationship with tantric nundra or a relationship with Yidam or relationship with I don't know any tantric practice that you you take on you you're stepping into a relationship with a really pretty clearly defined structure and system and that can be quite a growthful experience 
if it mm-hmm. if it's at the right time, the right time and the place mm-hmm. for you. Okay, then, so so yeah. you're saying that within evolving ground there is a space of practice or a node that has a little bit more of a systematic. It yeah. didn't sound like exactly systematic, but people can yes. try out different things, yeah. test different things, and yeah. it sounds like there's a lot of freedom of autonomy there. Um, but you said that that's also quite that's helpful. That's the starting point, I would say. That uh-huh. That is, for tantric practice, that's the necessary starting point. So in the wider community, we would be um, training integrity, autonomy, ethical maturity, emotional <laughs> maturity, making sure that in relation to meditation and practice, that that is an aspect of the way that the practice functions. And then within the the tantric group then when you have that there is then much more of a possibility that you can begin to um, really explore that relationship with systematicity and with structures and regard tantric path in some sense as a system it may not be a linear progressive system i mean it is traditionally presented in that way but we're Great. we're presenting it in a very different way so we're not saying that every individual will have the same path, will follow the mm-hmm. same sequential steps along a path, but rather that because of the differences, because of individual differences, individual backgrounds, you know, we're in this contemporary scenario where everybody has very, very different experiences and worldviews and uh, you know, childhood experiences and growing up is very different as well so we're ideally facilitating individual paths within the wider context so eventually there'll be a quite a variety of different methods and so we'll have that tantric node which is tantric method there'll be no set prescribed way through that It will be more that the community will facilitate individual paths through those different methods. Yeah, I got you. Go ahead, The other thing that I was, uh, you know, I've been fascinated about a lot is that, you know, the way that we actually are structuring the organization, the community, uh, is kind of inherently metasystematic as well. I I have a lot of corporate background and and working in different sectors and things. And um, I think some of those metasystematicity does arise from time to time, but it's usually fighting uh, a kind of ferocious grasping to solidify all of the different nodes of of, of each community. Um, We're not doing that. And so it the flavor of just being in the community, going to events, chatting on the Discord, um, is kind of it, it, it takes you into a mode that is a lot more fluid. Um, and so I think it's, um, I, I don't know what the impact is going to be or if it's ever going to be measurable, but I know it's got to, it, 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 it makes some difference because it is the kind of the background or the, the water that everybody's swimming in. Um, and, um, and then on top of that, I guess, you know, Charlie said, we don't prescribe very much. The only thing that we do uh, prescribe broadly is just our foundational meditation method, uh, which is all about kind of, uh, you know, it's a Shine uh, style meditation, um, all about discovering this kind of natural um, 
already there spaciousness. And I feel like that spaciousness is also kind of one of the core ingredients of being able to kind of step in and out of different places. So uh, it feels like those are both just by design of the the community um, are kind of leading toward it, making it easier to, to navigate in a more fluid way. Hmm. That's cool. There's so much I want to kind of do like a, almost like a contrast and compare with what we're doing with yeah, Buddhist geeks because ask. it's so interesting because a lot of what you're describing is, is very resonant in terms of how we've been approaching things. Like we really have also approached things starting off in a very small and insular way intentionally, not trying to just throw, throw the doors wide open, <laughs> you know, <laughs> thinking we have it all figured out and, you know, ready to just go. Um, but, but much more like spending years actually, um, kind of building some basic shared practices and understandings and meta models, and then being able to kind of, yeah, start engaging in, in, in some of these kinds of questions too, about, about ethics and integrity and, um, like how, how this stuff actually relates to our engagement with the world and each other. And for us too, it's been very much a fundamentally a social or relational, a framing or context, especially in recent years where social meditation, uh, as a suite of methods has been kind of one of our primary approaches, very much focused on bringing meditation out of the individual experience and into the shared relational field as well. So, you know, to me, there's, there's so many different overlaps and it all the way to the whole thing you're talking about, Charlie, about no prescribed method. You know, so mm -hmm. we, we've also just tried to map out in some ways the different methods and then the tech, you know, the different techniques within those methods. These, these are some ways you can practice and, and, and I've thought of it very much as like a networked approach to meditation, right? you know, where it's like by engaging in this method, you learn something that then you automatically bring, especially if you're in trying to, you bring it to some other method. And there's a way in which each technique is almost like a perspective, like a practice perspective. And it, it opens up a new way of looking that then informs the next practice, right. um, very different than the kind of pick one thing and go, go 20 years just running in that direction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and that's so interesting because it, it changes your whole language as well. It changes the language that you begin to use around practice and the language starts changing and becoming less, mm. less fixed. So um, I wrote a piece recently about the difference between the role of precision in different sorts of path. Like you have the, sequentially predictable stage path and you're going to have a language that is leading to you having that experience on the path as well and so it's going to be quite brittle quite directive quite prescriptive mm -hmm. in that sense and then in in the kind of mode that you're describing there Vince where you're relating methods to each other and seeing how engagement with one method alongside another can actually change your experience of the other method, this kind of alternation and movement between methods is, is really key to developing yes. a much more kind of contextual practice development rather than this um, set sequential stage. And then the language in relation to those methods begins to have much more of a 
much more of a fluid quality, like you would not necessarily be always using the same word in relation to the same practice. So we have opening awareness, and we have a, a whole cluster of words around the practice, and some find one particular approach and particular type of language really useful for where they're at. Um, mm -hmm. You may have other people who are coming from a highly concentrative, jhana-oriented approach yes. and the whole language that you're using in relation to expansive opening awareness in that context is going to have a different flavor you know you'll be using words much more like um outward expanding moving into uh noticing finding rather than observing discovery mm -hmm. I think that the methods themselves begin to develop their own language. Mm -hmm. This is so interesting just to kind of, again, relate um, on a more practical level. One of the things that we've been starting to explore in our social meditation sessions are working with practices where there's an open translation so say we're inviting the Brahma Viharas to arise, so doing like a, an out loud metta practice. May, you know, and I'm just saying may blank arise. That's the form of the practice. Um, but then tr inviting people to actually choose whatever translation of whichever of the four terms they want to use when it's mm -hmm. their turn, say. You know, so That's then fantastic. it's like opening up yeah. the creative space of exploration. And what I find happens invariably is the more we open up the form, there's a certain point that it starts to go formless, you know, where right. it's like, I don't know what we're doing here anymore. It doesn't <laughs> fall. As like you said, there's no prescribed form mm -hmm. to this, even though we might've started with one, you know, we right. might've started with the form that just sort of dissolved right. in the doing of it. Is that the kind of thing that you all are aiming for or finding happening? Does this, I, does this yeah. sound familiar? I mean, this, this is resonating a lot. Um, it resonates in terms of that combination of precision and accuracy with being okay with nebulosity and fundamentally mm -hmm. all right with a lack of certainty. And that's something that David is um, has, has described a lot. I mean, that really is almost what the entirety of meaningness is about in some way. So that how do you know when is it contextually appropriate to be more precise or to be open to uncertainty? And that in itself is a practice. And I think I hear you describing that as an aspect of your group dynamic yeah and it's it feels like there's a choice from the sort of teaching and designing role you know of choosing to instead of share the translation like this is the translation we're going to use mm. and i do that sometimes too like that can be intentional like if we talk about metasystematicity it doesn't preclude that as a possibility but mm -hmm. what about the times where i want to explore what it's like when that isn't being set. Like there's this very right. open frame for people to explore within, you know, outsourcing choice making, you know, or insourcing mm -hmm. it to the group mm -hmm. instead of, you know, holding that myself as the facilitator, the teacher. I think there's something really interesting that happens when the appropriate there's an appropriate 
releasing or distributing of authority where the, you know, the collective becomes empowered to liberate itself. To me, that's the most interesting thing as a participant. I'm like interested in that, that collective liberation piece when that happens. Like, oh, How cool. do you avoid falling into a kind of egalitarian pea soup mush of um, everyone in a cuddle pile of feel good art? <laughs> <laughs> Zoom helps, you know, like, you know cuddle puddles and Zoom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think like you, we have some clear roles um, in our community that are vertical in some ways. I mean, or that require a certain amount of commitment and training. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of just automatically there is that dimension of things where there's some assumptions you can make about their background and training and the relationships they've had with other people in the community. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's something like that, I guess. Um, right. But, you know, in the social meditation, it is very, that is a very peer to peer form of practice. It's, it's intentionally designed to be, to be facilitated as a peer-to-peer -peer practice. Mm -hmm. And so there it is very open, but that's why we train facilitators right. to be able to facilitate those methods and distinguish that from Dharma or meditation teachers. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like mm -hmm. Dharma or meditation teachers would be able to use that as one teaching as a tool. Method. Right. As a method, tool. exactly. Yeah. But that would be subservient to the deeper purpose mm -hmm. of teaching, you know, and supporting mm -hmm. people. Um, mm -hmm. so it's something like that, trying to make those distinctions, but honestly, it feels challenging, uh, on, on the best of days because I find myself wanting to complexify and then like, suddenly it's like a hierarchy of teachers. Oh my God, yeah, this is going right. too far, you know, right. some, at times right. into that, into that side of things. Yes. Yeah. Just so paying I, attention I to, to what is actually happening in this relationship <laughs> yes. now Yes. Is, uh, Again, that, like you're saying, I think that gives rise to finding a language that is descriptive of experience rather than um, directive. And yes. yeah, having that as a, a common method across practices seems pretty good as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Vince, how explicit are you with bringing in the adult developmental framework? Um, it depends on the context. Um, so it's, it's certainly explicit in a lot of the training curriculum that we use. That's kind of like the core. So in, in, in our integral Dharma training material, it's, it's fundamental to that. And we have other training material that focuses on stage development, not those kind of stages, but more meditative type stages. So the developmental piece is very explicit throughout, but that is very explicit in our integral Dharma kind of context framing. I'm not sure what to call it. One dimension of the Dharma that we're exploring that's really important. I want to go back to the beginning. Could I go back to the beginning for a second? Because where I wanted to start <laughs> was actually talking about evolving ground. Um, so... Our purpose at Buddhist Geeks for the last few years has been evolving Dharma. So this is something I can, it's just so interesting to me, evolving ground that I know the word ground has a special significance in the Vajrayana context. Like I think of ground path or fruition, mm -hmm. things like that, um, pointing to the ground, the groundless mm -hmm. ground, maybe that's more Zen, mm -hmm. but 
But then the evolving piece, which is the part that we share in common here, that's something that, at least for me, I ran into initially through people like Ken Wilber, uh, and dare I na- name him Andrew Cohen, um, <laughs> one of the one of the failure modes that you're talking about. They were talking really about how the Mahayana understanding of form is emptiness, emptiness is form. You have to extend that and go further and say, well, we know that the world of form is evolving now. That's one of our best ways of understanding our best stories. And so thus the emptiness itself must be evolving if it's none, none other, if there's, if there's no non-separation between these two dimensions. So to me, that has always informed how we, you know, how we are approaching this whole project of trying to adapt a lot of these dharmic ideas, teachings, principles, meditative practices, ethical considerations, like into like actual community, like you're doing, you know, how does it, how is it formed? What are the roles? What do you do? Uh, how does the economics of it work? How is the governance function? Mm-hmm. You know, all the questions you have to ask if you're trying to do some kind of utopian esque project. <laughs> and so I guess I'm just curious, yeah, for you all, when you talk about evolving ground, what does that mean to you? What does the evolving part mean? And, and what, what is it in relation to, to ground? Mm-hmm. Sorry, I should have started there. <laughs> <laughs> what editing software is for? <laughs> and we're following a circle lo- loop rather than a than a little straight line, I guess. Yeah. I'm trying to even remember how it came up. I, I don't. We have a strange we, we were, thing. We where were a lot in of conversation we about what are we going to call? What are we going to call what we're doing? And we went through all <laughs> kinds of different. Uh, um, pair words. We were looking at pair words mm-hmm. because of this emptiness mm-hmm. form relationship, and uh-huh. so ground is kind of very formy. You know, it's very, uh, it's got this sense of solidity and firmness mm. and and uh, yeah, you know, construct mm. or, or or established base or whatever. And then evolving is very much more fluid, fluid, sorry, and impermanent and and much more of a naturally it seems to have much more of an emptiness quality and yet mm. one of the things that we emphasize a lot is the like you said the zen phrase the groundless ground or the the ground of being is inherently um empty of solid fixed uh, permanent nature or certainty so there's that flip that occurs and the evolving nature of things is what is happening now that is actually very uh, real and immediate and um, relational and contextual so that in some sense is the ground itself as well so there's this uh, nature of the the two being an emptiness form pairing there's also the sense of the ground being traditional vajrayana where we're, there's a big hat mm. to, to established understanding, lineage, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. history, tradition. It's really important, I think, for people to be able to understand where particular approaches and methods and understandings and experiences come from. And right. the evolving part of that is some kind of a translation. It's a movement of the way that those have been 
we were talking earlier about fixed in form or the way that they arose in a particular culture that is now open for translation. So in the sense that there's not a complete rejection of tradition there, there's not a complete rejection of, um, if you like, the authority of tradition, authority in the sense of expertise rather than um, hierarchy or whatever. So there's a respect there for the ground that we're growing from and there is the openness in terms of being able to you know, w- with the experience, with the experience of um, the traditional practices and having been through those experiences and understood how they function experientially, then it becomes possible to yes. look at them and relate to them in terms of the principle, the mechanism by which they work, rather than the specific form which they happened to um, mm-hmm. become set in in a particular right culture. right no it can, can totally relate to that i mean the the move that kenneth made just to start doing a lot of these early buddhist forms out loud mm-hmm. right it, it broke it broke a particular taboo of in yes, terms of the structure of how so. it was laid down and then yeah. it was like oh wait a second why can't we just do all these other things of course we can we always could but it was sort of fixed in that frame and it felt like almost like you can't question the precious dharmic frame you know the dharma and the frame become one and the same at times <laughs> so to me it's like yeah breaking the frame is really powerful uh, i mm-hmm. remember one of our students for a long time john simon he he was doing these pictures you know these uh large scale paintings where the content of the painting was exponentially breaking out of the frame, you know, and uh, it, and it, it feels like in some ways when I th- hear you all talk, I get those some pictures of that or that sense of you're starting in the frame and there's that rep, you know, recognition of tradition, you know, and of the form, you know, in visual art, mm-hmm. it's like the painting inside the frame in here. It's the, 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 the actual lineage and tradition, but it's like mm-hmm. go by the, the evolution does seem to also break or it seems to imply a kind of breaking of the frame is, if not necessary right off the bat, is to be yeah. expected. You know, one of the things that uh, we were talking about recently in the contemporary Tantra class or group, uh, practice group, was how when Tantra first emerged in India, it was effectively breaking a frame. It was... Yes breaking the universalism you know the gupta empire had had already broken up there were mm. there was a lot of chaos social chaos political chaos um the evolution of early tantra coming out of the mahayana more renunciative worldview the way that that was forming was in response to desperate situations you know re-arising of feudalism of uh, different uh, wars happening, you know, wars between different uh, kingdoms, states, tribes, whatever. So you have this um, socially, culturally driven need to relate spiritually in a different way to what is happening. And I think we're seeing that now. Again, very similar kind of thing happening. There's a a plurality of cultures. There's... um, a lot of chaos. Navigating the, the the landscape of information has become precarious. And I do think that 
understanding how Tantra can have a very specific, very particular role in relation to that is a worthwhile project. It's kind of what we're doing. And that is an aspect mm-hmm. of the evolution. There are lots of parallels there about how Tantra originally evolved and then how it evolved again in Tibet in relation to uh, you know, the different situation there. Mm-hmm. For me, the, it's interesting too, the, the ground, I also feel a gravity to a, a future focus as well, uh, and specifically about in the same way that we're informed traditionally from a, from the tradition, uh, what we're doing is aiming to create a ground for next generations too, and so mm-hmm. so yeah, maybe the the audacious thing is is hoping that this uh, that we're just kind of creating or kind of pushing the uh, giving some momentum to this uh, this new evolution, um, but uh, definitely not not our own. <laughs> mm. But also, it seems like you have in mind some specific directions that you're heading that you're nowhere near there yet, but that um, Mm. evolving ground, uh, unlike biological evolution, there is some sense of guidance and, you know, roughly where you're headed or at least several possible um, Mm. future directions. Yeah. I mean, certainly one direction that we've talked about um, formatively, but we don't yet have and will not have for some years um, anything in terms of established method is the relationship between heroism, warriorship, martial arts, and um, the way that Vajrayana can kind of flip the self-protection that is embedded in the usual martial approach to be protection of others or protecting um, protecting the relationship or protecting the family or you know that a lot of the uh, martial background that I have in the Lingesar terma is somewhat connected to that and so we're in future we'll probably be looking a lot more at physical exercises and how physicality relates to congruent spontaneous response as well mm, okay that's interesting because i remember i remember at naropa one of the one of the things that found very interesting but i wasn't involved in was the military kind of branch of shambhala i forget the name of it i'm sure you oh, yes. all remember that yeah uh, I, that I kind of became pretty fixed as well didn't it eventually i imagine I it did it, uh, yeah. That, that said, the, I mean, yeah. very interesting. Like a lot of progressively minded folks in these communities, like look, like, would would be sort of shocked, I think, by that um, mm-hmm. in some ways. Mm-hmm. But I met a guy, a friend in, at Naropa, who was an uh, ex military, as many of my friends are from growing up, mm-hmm. and you know that for him was the way in. You know that was mm-hmm. the way he got mm-hmm. engaged because it, the form was familiar. It was military. You know he. That was a, a very great doorway for him into into practice. Right. So right, and there is a way in which any um, any martial experience, particularly full contact martial training, brings you immediately up against your emotional response. Mm. You cannot mm-hmm. exist in that kind of a context without practicing with regard to emotional turbulence. Um, being threatened, being immediately 
very physically threatened, you know, that is not disconnected from being psychologically threatened or threatened by, you know, ideologically threatened or, or whatever. So practicing yeah. physically in that kind of a context also is very relevant to being able to, again, achieve that good base of spaciousness, openness, and, you know, capacity to deal with your own difficult stuff. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.